As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter 1. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy-to-read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. You are listening to the fourth episode of the C.S. Lewis podcast with Professor Alistair McGrath. I'm Ruth Jackson, and over this first series of the podcast, Alistair and I will be looking at some of Lewis's thoughts around significant topics, such as the meaning of life, suffering, and the hope of heaven. You can find out more about the C.S. Lewis podcast by heading to cslewispodcast.com. C.S. Lewis is one of the most influential voices in modern Christianity. The 20th century British writer and lay theologian has profoundly impacted Christians around the world and brought many atheists and agnostics to faith in Jesus. One person whose faith was greatly encouraged by the writings of C.S. Lewis is Professor Alistair McGrath. Both men were raised in Northern Ireland, studied at Oxford University and went on to become professors there. They also both came to faith from atheism slightly later in life. Alistair has written numerous books on C.S. Lewis, including a seminal biography, C.S. Lewis, A Life, which is published by Hodder. If you would like to get your hands on a free copy of this book, then we would love you to post about the C.S. Lewis podcast on social media. Use the hashtag C.S. Lewis podcast on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram and include a link to our website, cslewispodcast.com. If you enjoy this podcast, please don't forget to like, rate and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. And obviously, the more you share about the podcast, the more likely you are to win one of Professor Alistair McGrath's books. On today's episode, we will be building on last week's podcast around Narnia and stories and focusing particularly on the character of Aslan. Alistair, welcome back. Uh, Last time we were talking about Narnia and the importance of stories. We're going to slightly carry on that theme and talk specifically about Aslan and unpack a little bit more of what Aslan meant to C.S. Lewis. And uh, as we've been looking at lots of these topics, I've taken your themes in this brilliant book, Deep Magic Dragons and Talking Mice, which is such a great title. And one of those themes that you hone in in is, uh, is Aslan. So Aslan's probably one of the the most famous characters in all of literature. Where do you think Aslan came from? Well, Lewis just says Aslan came bounding into my imagination. In other words, um, he doesn't really know. I think, <laughs> I think that, that, that's probably true because many times um, scholars have tried to understand how the imaginative process works. And the answer is something clicks and Lo and behold, there's the idea, and Lewis just seems to have seen this. But actually, it makes a lot of sense, because why a lion to begin with? Well, actually, it's very rich symbolism, nobility, that sort of idea, the idea of the king, but of course also the deep 
biblical resonances, the, the Lion of Judah, that sort of thing. So you can see that actually what Lewis is doing is fixing on an animal which actually has rich cultural and theological associations. And it really allows him to begin to do some very exciting things. And of course, he um, is well versed in the literature of the Ottoman Empire. And he knows that the Turkish word for lion is Aslan. And that's very important because, in effect, what, what he is doing is picking up on a, a way of referring to lions that was very important in the shaping of European literature during the 19th century. And it's basically part of his literary background, which he's bringing into the conversation here. But most people have no idea that Aslan is the Turkish word for lion or where Lewis got that name from. That's interesting. And I think as well, it sort of touches on, I think sometimes when we think of God, we think of him as being fluffy and our best friend and really close. And of course, he's all of those things. But I think I remember when I first read the uh, Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe being really struck by that bit where Lucy's talking to Mrs. Beaver and, and says, oh, well, is he not safe then? And Mrs. Beaver says, no, he's not safe, but he is good. And there's a sense in which actually there's so many facets to a lion, isn't there, which talks about the different the different aspects of God's character. Very much so. And one of the key points Lewis makes is you can't domesticate a lion. Mm. You know, a lion is wild. A lion cannot be tamed. And, and it's this idea that very often we we almost dilute God what we want him to be. Put you know, him in our own little box. Exactly. You know, it's like a fluffy pussycat. You know, <laughs> God's there to be stroked, you know. And, 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 and doesn't kind of get in the way. And, of course, what Lewis is saying is, no, no, Aslan is the one who changes things. And that is a very unsettling concept because he's going to change you. And you don't control him, but he, in effect, is the one who, is, is the one who changes you. And I think that, that is it's a very nice way of making that point there. What else do you think Aslan shows us about God? I think one of the most interesting things about the way in which... Um, Lewis portrays Aslan, his, his description of the impact of Aslan on each of the four Pevensey children in A Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And one feels overwhelmed. One feels en- energized, you know, and each f- experiences Aslan in a different way. And the point that Lewis is making is actually all of these ways are entirely understandable, reasonable. But Aslan relates to these children as individuals, not a generic approach. It basically is an individual approach. And what, as, uh, what I think Lewis is saying there, basically, is that's the way God relates to us, that we, we experience him in different ways. We respond to God in different ways. Same God, but we're individuals. And that means we experience this God in different but equally valid ways. Now, Aslan doesn't just reveal facets of God. He also reveals weaknesses in certain philosophical approaches. Would you say a little bit about that, about the way that Aslan kind of unpicks some of the things that, I suppose, maybe the narratives that people who were reading C.S. Lewis and and sort of contemporaries of of C.S. Lewis, they would have just seen to be absolutely true. And, And through this fiction, through Aslan's character, he begins to unpick or at least sort of raise questions about some of those philosophical approaches. Yes, that's really interesting. I think the big um, 
the big mistake, if I can put this, that, that Lewis is trying to unpick is the idea that God is simply a concept or an idea, something impersonal, something that in effect is purely abstract, a philosophical idea which has no bearing on individuals. And clearly what Lewis is saying is that... Um, that Aslan relates to people and changes them, that, that Aslan is one who speaks, who lives. And maybe what Lewis is doing here is picking up on that distinction that Pascal made back in the 17th century between the God of the philosophers and the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, a living God versus an idea of God. So I think one of the first things that Lewis is saying is that Aslan is no idea. This is a living lion, and therefore that, in effect, helps us to see we need to think of God in those terms. Banke is also um, very critical of certain types of deity, such as those we find in Greek myths, where gods, in effect, are self-serving, they get into fights with each other, and in effect, they're so busy um, you know, manipulating human struggles that all they're doing really is simply pursuing their own agendas. And Aslan is portrayed as somebody who pursues justice, that he is a good lion, a lion who, in effect, um, cares for his creation. Remember that beautiful account of creation in The Magician's Nephew where Aslan sings. Mm -hmm. It's a very, very moving passage. But certainly he's trying to say that Aslan is a good lion who can be trusted and who cares for those he creates. And obviously all of these can easily be transposed into Christian theological concepts. But Lewis is not doing that. He's leaving it to us to do that. What he's trying to do is to paint Aslan in terms that make him winsome and noble and make us think that is such a wonderful lion. I'd like to meet him. It's very, very important. <laughs> It's very captivating, isn't it? It is. Great way of putting it. You mention in your book, Deep Magic, Dragons and Talking Mice, that Aslan not only speaks truth about himself, uh, about God, but he also enables us to find the truth about ourselves. Would you explain a bit more about what you mean about that? And and I suppose what, what that means for the characters in the Narnia Chronicles? I think that Lewis is using a very interesting technique to try and get us to think about how we discover what we really are. And he's trying to make the point that actually the wrong person to tell us who we are is ourselves, Mm. that we hold this self-image which we diligently try to preserve. And Lewis is saying, no, no, you need to be told how you really are. You need somebody who's outside you, who's able to speak the truth in love. And so very often, in particular Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, you have Aslan speaking to the children and saying things that actually are harsh, or they sound harsh. But when you think about them, they're not really harsh. They're liberating because they enable people to say, I am trapped in a web of self-deceit, and I need to move on. I need to discover who I really am. And someone has to puncture this, um, this fraudulent self-image, and it's Aslan. And so I think what Lewis is really saying is that we all need a mirror we can hold up to our soul, in which we begin to realize that actually we just can't go on like this. We are, we're a fraud. We're a delusion. We need to be told the way we really are. And for Lewis, Aslan does that. 
And Aslan, theologically, is modeling what Christ does to us. That In effect, we see ourselves in Christ, and we realize we do not match up to this at all. We've got to change. We've got to do something. And um, that um, Aslan for, Christ, for Lewis is motivating change. You know, we realize the need to change, and we go and try and do it. Now, obviously, you need to add a bit more theology to that. For example, <laughs> where is the idea of divine grace and so on? But, you know, Lewis can't say everything at once. He, he's trying to give you this idea that once you encounter Aslan, i.e. Christ, you just can't go on the way you are. You, you, you're like the fisherman by the shores of Lake Galilee. You drop everything and follow Christ. And as you follow, you learn and you're changed. We spoke in one of the previous podcasts about what C.S. Lewis would think of social media. Uh, and that fits in quite quite well here, doesn't it? That sense in which actually with social media, you're constantly getting your opinion from from what you think about yourself, but also others the validation of others and not necessarily looking at god i suppose this comes to play here as well that actually aslan as god being the kind of ultimate point of reference which we just don't seem to have when it comes to social media i think that um social media can easily become an echo chamber where it's just people saying i'm great and everybody else saying oh you're great too and we're great too aren't we and so it becomes like a sort of um uh, you know, nothing but constant self-affirmation and self-congratulation. And there comes a point where you have to say, actually, this isn't right. You know, there are problems here, and I'm, I'm simply suppressing these, and my friends are doing exactly the same thing. We need to be real. And I think that most people are aware that what we find on social media is, in effect, a facade. And behind it, there's somebody who's struggling for recognition, who has deep personal problems. But because of the nature of social media, cannot admit to this and hence cannot find help or indeed cannot find others who will open up and say, well, actually, we have the same problem, but we're not going to talk about this because we're not allowed to. So in one sense, what Aslan is doing is giving us permission to say, actually, I've got problems. I need help. And that, that is just so therapeutic. You know, in fact, it, it's, if you like, um, almost, um, you know, the dialogue in Romans chapter 7, where Paul is saying, you know, the good I want to do, I can't do it. The evil I do, don't want to do, I do it. Oh, who's going who's gonna to help me? And his answer is, of course, you know, thanks be to God, Christ Jesus. And it's very, very important. And it's that ability to recognize problems um, you know, philosophers like Iris Murdoch have said that really we have a propensity to simply deceive ourselves. We become so good at this that we just stop realizing actually it's a deceit. And we need someone to puncture that balloon and say, look, let's talk real for a change. And Aslan is the one who helps the children to face reality, but doesn't leave them because you have this idea Aslan accompanies the children as they change. Because you see that a bit with Edmund, don't you? I've always felt quite sorry for Edmund because in some senses it's not his fault that he believes the wrong story because he met the White Witch first. But you see Aslan just being incredibly gracious with Edmund, don't you? Of course, as you say, he speaks truth and he speaks um, uncomfortable words at times, but he also is incredibly gentle with Edmund, isn't he? I think that's right. And um, one of the things that really strikes me about Lewis's narrative is how how much thought has gone into that, uh, both in terms of trying to convey theological substance, but also to make it credible. So that in effect, Aslan does not come across as arbitrarily judgmental, but actually as someone who is catalyzing change for the better. 
And I, I think it, it's very well done. And again, I, I think that in Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, we, we may see Lewis at his best. You know, it's almost as if a huge amount of energy has gone into writing that book. And it, it's so well done. I think as well, you see a real because I suppose with the lion, you 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 understand that he's great, that he has the power to change people, that he's um, not safe but he's good, all of that. But I think as well in the magician's nephew, where Diggory is speaking to Aslan about his mother, who's not very well at all. I think you see the real compassion of God in that, and you see that Diggory is surprised by how big Aslan's tears are, and he says at one point, doesn't he, that he thought that Aslan might be even more sad than he was, and I. I think that's where you see a totally different side of Aslan, a different side of the heart of God, the God who not only catches our tears in his bottle, as it says in the Psalms, but also who cries with us, who weeps alongside us. Yes, that is very, very moving, especially when you remember that Lewis's mother died when he was only, what, nine, you know, and that must have been traumatic for him. And, and you know, maybe he's kind of way. You know, very often Lewis would say when you when you're coping with something, you write it down. Maybe that was Lewis helping himself to deal with his own mother's memory. So I I found that very, very moving. But actually, theologically, it makes a lot of sense. It is a very good articulation of the absolute love of God for us, whereby when we suffer, God is part of that suffering. You know, it's, it's so wonderful. And it's all about, you know, that imagery in Psalm 23 of a God who journeys with us. So he's there in the great times, but also when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death. It's, it's a very, very powerful theological theme. And Lewis, I think, uses it very, very well. Now, the Narnia Chronicles were written a long time ago. Aslan was conceived a long time ago. Do you think the story and the character of Aslan still have relevance in today's culture? I think with um, the Chronicles of Narnia, we have a retelling of the gospel story, which is embedded in 1940s Britain. Um, So obviously, um, it, it reads slightly strangely to someone you know, like me, who um, didn't live during the 1940s, and to anyone who lives, you know, in, in the 21st century, just say, well, I, I, I can't relate to this. <laughs> it's strange. And, of course, there is this, this danger that cultural distance makes it difficult for us to understand. But when people have talked to me about this, I've very often said, look, just, um, just say to yourself, this is, this is strange. It's not where I live, but just enter into it. Because very often what you find is that many contemporary writers try to take you back to a different time to tell a story. And in effect, Lewis isn't trying to take you back to a different time. It's just it was it was real when he wrote it. But nevertheless, we can enter into that past world and then let Lewis lead us into this imaginary world, which seems so fresh. And the paradox for me is that as I read the Chronicles of Narnia, the imaginary world of Narnia seems more real to me than the social world in which Lewis locates the actual story. Stories are obviously a really important thing for C.S. Lewis. Can you give an example of where Lewis has used a story to illustrate a really important theological point? Uh, That's a great question. And and for me, one of the most difficult theological concepts to kind of way understand or, or envisage is the idea of sin, because it seems so abstract. But Lewis tells a story about sin, and suddenly we find ourselves 
almost able to to grasp what it's all about. And of course, this is the voyage of the Dawn Treader, and we're looking at Eustace Scrub, who I think is one of the most objectionable characters <laughs> uh, in Lewis's writing. But actually, Lewis does some very interesting things with him. And what Lewis does is to describe Eustace Scrub's greed. Uh, he, you know, he he longs to be powerful. He longs to be wealthy. And what Lewis does is, in effect, says Eustace becomes what he desires. And Lewis here draws on Nordic myths which portray dragons as symbols of greed. And so Eustace becomes a dragon. And then the issue begins to emerge. Eustace does not like this. But what can he do about it? Eustace says, right, I'm going to go back to being a boy. So he starts scratching himself, trying to get rid of the dragon scales. And, and nothing happens. And he, he's in despair. How on earth can I kind of become a boy all over again? And the answer is he cannot. And then Aslan bounds into the scene and begins to claw away at Eustace's flesh. The dragon scales come off, and then he throws Eustace into the well, and Eustace emerges transformed back to being a boy. And the point that um, Lewis is making is, look, we cannot break free from the hold of sin. It's like uh, having a different nature. We cannot break free from it. We need somebody from outside, a redeemer, a transformer, who's able to change our natures, which is not something we can do. And when that happens, we are healed. And of course, it's a very powerful reference to baptism in, in the well motif. So you see, there's a story there being told about how, in effect, you are taken over by your inner desires and cannot break free from, and somebody else has to do it. And so what Lewis is planting in his readers' minds is this. Maybe we're trapped in where we don't want to be, but can't get to where we do want to be. But that's what redemption's all about. Christ is able to transform the human situation, delivering us from a force which holds us captive and from which we can't break free on our own. You've touched there on some really significant themes and stories within particularly the Narnia Chronicles. How do we find out more of, uh, I guess, what Lewis thought about Aslan, how Aslan came to be, more about the Narnia stories, more about stories in general and and what C.S. Lewis thought about the Christian life and how, how that's lived out, particularly through stories? Well, I think we can obviously read Narnia and say, let's figure out what he's doing. But actually, at several points in some of his essays, Lewis does talk about the, if you like, the creation of Narnia, the, the way in which these ideas began to come together for him. But there are many books written about uh, Lewis on Narnia, and I'm sure many of those would be helpful to you. But what I would say is that there's no substitute for reading <laughs> the Chronicles of Narnia. And look, I first did this when I was 22. I had read no literature about Lewis. I didn't really know who he was. And I began to read these, and I just got caught up in the narrative, and I could not put them down. And I think that that's one of the things I'd want to say, that actually maybe the best way to think about Narnia is to say, I'm going to immerse myself in Narnia, and then I'll think about it later. I'm going to let Narnia do its magic, and then I'll try and reflect on what I found later. Do you think it's helpful to have some questions in your mind as you're reading those, or do you just read them and let the story take over? I think the story takes over. I mean, it always helps to have a number of questions like, um, who is Aslan, or things like that. But actually, what you find very often is as you read it, 
the story just takes over and you kind of forget about the questions because the story is formulating its own questions and giving its own answers. So there's a sense in which you're entering into Lewis's world and you find it just takes you over. It's fascinating. Alistair, thank you so much. I'm desperate to just go and read them all again now. (laughs) They're great. Do it. Thank you for listening to the fourth episode of the C.S. Lewis podcast with Professor Alistair McGrath. I'm Ruth Jackson, and if you enjoyed this podcast, then please don't forget to like, rate and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you use. If you would like to get your hands on a free copy of one of Alistair's books about C.S. Lewis, then we would love you to post about this new C.S. Lewis podcast on social media. Use the hashtag C.S. Lewis podcast on Facebook, Twitter or Instagram and include a link to our website, cslewispodcast.com. Over this first series of the C.S. Lewis podcast, Alistair and I will be looking at some of Lewis's thoughts around significant topics such as education, suffering and the hope of heaven. Next week, we will be taking a break from our series to broadcast a special edition of the C.S. Lewis podcast.